I think the biggest thing is, and this goes for racing overall, it's just very important even in a transition. It's just like calm is fast and fast is calm. Like if you're able to think and you just slow down, you almost go through things in slow motion. If you're panicked, then everything gets jerky, you make mistakes. Yeah, I think it was John Wooden who said, don't hurry, go fast. Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Condola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we have a very exciting podcast. I am honored to have Ben Knute on with us. Ben has been one of those guys that I have followed for years. I was always a fan. Now I have the privilege to work with him along with Bobby McGee. And I can tell you that he is the sportsman that I've always looked up to. He did not disappoint. Meeting Ben was one of the best moments of my life. And I can tell you for the last two and a half years, I've been able to work with him. I am just completely blown away. He's like a Rocky movie when I watch him race. I love it. It brings me back to why I got involved with the sport in the first place. But without further ado, Ben Canute, how are you, buddy? Oh, I'm doing great, especially with that intro. I've been saying a lot lately, I need to take these intros from the podcast and just you know pay somebody to come around and intro me when I walk in a room. But I think that one being compared to the Rocky movie might top all the other ones so far. So I'm excited to be here and, and talk with you guys. Thank you. Good it's to see you, genuine. Good to see you, Ben. Why Why don't we start off by you giving your unique take on on who you are, not only as an athlete but as a person, and 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 you know, give us a bit of background and introduce yourself. Sure. Um, well, I guess my day job is I'm a professional triathlete, and I've uh, been doing triathlon since you know eight years old, nine years old. Uh, pretty much been around the sport my entire life and have done everything from racing the Olympics to race the long course. Um, been second at the half Ironman world champs a couple times. Um, yeah, I've just, you know, kind of progressed and finally did my first full Ironman last year and just raced challenge rock where I set the American record, um, for time for an Ironman. I was third overall and yeah, family. I've, I've got a, a beautiful wife and two kids. Um, and, you know, just try to be better every day, I guess, just chipping away and um, trying to find that right balance between being the best in the world at triathlon and being the best husband and father that I can be. Yep. And and uh, preparing for some cooler races in a very cool environment, I'm, I'm understanding. <laughs> yeah. So I base out of Phoenix and I do spend some time in San Diego to avoid the heat. But after Roth have based out of Phoenix and there's a race in Milwaukee coming up, which, you know, Midwest is always a little hot, but uh, racing in Singapore in August. And our start time is at 3.30 p.m. And I mean, everybody knows the that kind of it's, it's pretty much on the equator and Singapore is never really cold. And that should especially be warm and very humid. So get it in a bit of heat training. And um, yeah, they call it the poor man's altitude. And it feels like I'm at 10 or 15,000 feet out here in Phoenix setting heat records. <laughs> yep. Yep. And, and being the father of, of two young ones, right. That we can hear in the background. 
And also, you know, when, when you had your kids, you were also at very important stages in your career and you did an incredible job of, of managing, you know, a young family during that time. Thanks. It was definitely an adjustment. You know, each time we, you know, you double the amount of people and the amount of kids that you have with going from zero to one, one to two. Um, but I have, my wife is amazing. She's taken on, you know, a lot so that I can be able to train and recover. So, um, it's definitely an adjustment just like anything in life, but we've, uh, I think done a pretty good job at finding the balance and, you know, figuring out schedules and that sort of thing. And as you get going, you just learn more and more and are able to just continue to get better at it. Is there an understanding with the oldest one about what dad does? I think a little bit. There's definitely um, some cheering that can that can go on, and she loves being around and watching. You know, I, sometimes you know I'll have the Tour de France on or had that Netflix series, and she's fascinated by bikes, and um, she has her own little Strider bike, which she loves, as well as you know seeing dad's bike or mom's bike. So um, there's a bit of an understanding there, but um, honestly, like you know, she's two and a half, and likes being around it, likes, you know, cheering and everything, but is still, you know, maybe not fully grasping just yet, which I think is good as well. Just, you know, triathlon's another job, right? It's just a very unique and kind of funny one. Yeah. No, no. Fair enough. Fair enough. Dads get sweaty a lot, right? Exactly. Yeah. And st- talking about, about young ones, Ben, we've known each other, I think since 2008, maybe. Um, I'm not yeah. sure when we first met, but you, you were a junior triathlete and maybe you can say something about those early days in Chicago and what started you off because you've been a hectically good triathlete for a very long time. Yeah. So my dad was doing triathlon when I was super young, watched him racing the Chicago tri, which was Mrs. T's at the time. And, um, I was probably, you know, three, four five years old, something like that. He was uh, 96, 97. So maybe a little bit older than maybe around six or seven, but some early memories watching him race. And, uh, that group, Chicago, the Chicago land area was just a hotbed of triathlon still is. And, um, a lot of age group triathletes around and those age group triathletes had kids and they wanted a kid's triathlon at, you know, the local health and wellness center. And my parents were played a role in that. And that gave me the opportunity to try it out and be like dad and, be like, you know, the guys that I was watching at the Ironman World Championships that would be shown on you know NBC. And um, I just thought it was super cool. I loved riding my bike, swimming. I got a pretty early start on and that just kind of clicked with me too. And from there, there was a kids triathlon team that started up, you know, a couple years after I did that first triathlon, just, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes from my house. And I jumped at the opportunity to do that. And my parents were really good about encouraging me to try a bunch of different sports and uh, try a lot of different things. And triathlon, I think, because of that team and the people that were on it, they were just good people too. And we just had a lot of fun. And, you know, I wasn't really on a travel baseball team. It didn't click as fast. Uh, some of these other like sports, like soccer, just wasn't really drawn towards the travel teams. But with triathlon, my first year we did it, it was age group. It was the Iron Kids National Champs, and we got to go to Atlanta. And then the next year we went to Bellingham, Washington for my first first youth uh, championships. And we did a camp out in Galena, Illinois, out in the middle of nowhere. 
and it was just awesome. All we did was just like swim, bike, run, and you know, hang out, play games, and just had a blast. And so I think that's what drew me there. And I had some early success as well, which you know always helps to to be interested. But uh, kind of the coach and the guy who started the team wanted to make it a lot like the club swimming at the time, where that was a feeder system to the Olympics. And he started the team, you know, maybe mid two thousands. Um, and that was after one or two Olympic games for triathlon. And so he saw this as a feeder system to the Olympics, um, through the USAT system. And so that's when, you know, high performance kind of got introduced to me, especially racing the youth national championships every year, um, where all the best youth triathletes would come. And that just kind of got instilled in us and kind of brings me to when we met is when you're trying to compete at the highest level, uh, swimming, you know, swim coaches are kind of abundant, especially around Chicago, had some good swim coaches. Cycling, um, there's always kind of some groups, but we found some cycling coaches, some guys who were like kind of that like pro-ish level cat one who were able to teach us bike handling. Um, but running, I think, is a little bit more challenging sometimes. And especially with form, it didn't really come super easily. So I forget exactly how we got connected, but we did just over run form. And that's where I think one of the first times we met in Boulder, I think we were running around the track um, doing drills out there. And from that point on, it seems like every single year, once or twice a year, we were able to meet up, work on some drills, slowly progress the run form from if you look back at some of the videos of me as a junior, like I would wobble back and forth. I would, you know, be running on my toes because that was, you know, a thing with Alistair Brownlee. Like we all were yeah. trying to run on our toes a bunch um, to now where I'm, you know, a much more fluid runner. My arms don't flail. I'm much more focused on moving forward, have a, a pretty solid forward lean. So that's like, you know, 10 years plus in the making. And then, of course, the addition, like worked with you for 10 years and then we add in Matt. And that was kind of like, you know, the secret sauce and putting everything together. Yeah, I used to worry about you running away from danger in a in an alleyway because your shoulders would hit the walls going left and right. And now I'm absolutely happy with how you run down an alleyway. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. So when did the Olympic dream start? It started on that. Did you start thinking, well... Well, I mean, I think being a professional athlete, I always had this, you know, whatever sport it was, every, I, most young kids, I think, want to try and play professional sports, uh, most young boys. And, you know, at one point, you know, I wanted to be a right fielder in baseball, which I didn't really realize that when you're not very good at baseball, they kind of stick you out in right field because not many people hit the ball out there. Um, <laughs> so that was one thing, but I just, I think professional sports just kind of, I love competing, always been very competitive, but one of the times that I remember, and I don't know exactly how old I was, but the guy who started the team, we were all doing like a swim bike brick. And he was talking about like, this workout is going to, you know, help you qualify like this picture yourself in the Olympics. Like this all adds up like to go there. And that was probably one of the moments where it's like, yeah, th that's what we're working towards. And that's what I want to do. And that's where, you know, high school, I swam and ran and I started to think about, you know, I want to focus more on triathlon. So that kind of led to deciding where I would go to college and focusing on getting my pro card and then 
the opportunity from USA Triathlon um, really to race overseas after my freshman year in college really kind of kick-started it. Um, I wasn't even going to take my pro card that year. I was going to, the high V triathlon was there and they had elite amateur, um, racing with the prize being a mini Cooper. So you could win a car and I was going to go try and do that. But obviously racing in Europe was four different races uh, on four weekends and just jumped at that opportunity and and learned a lot there. Um, but I think it kind of came in sections. So I was like picturing it when I was young, probably that 13 to 15 year old, 16 year old range. And then continuing to just move through the system and knowing, hey, even in high school, like I want to race as a professional. I'm good enough as a junior. I think I can make that jump, just keep chipping away. And then in college, kind of going all in. And it was after that freshman year and really decide, like seeing where I stacked up against an international field in Europe. Uh, and it was actually my mom. We sat down. She actually, I mean, she played a huge role in early triathlon for me and helping me choose colleges and you know navigate a lot of that different college selection process and and where to train for triathlon but we looked at how many credits i needed for school plus um how many points i would need to put me in the running for qualifying for the 2016 olympics and i realized i could graduate in three years and have extra time to go chase those points and try and qualify for the olympics in 2016 And so that's what I set out to do. And um, I don't know if I would suggest that to the average person to like speed up your college experience and like um, try and cram and and do all of that. But it worked out or ended up working out super well for me. Yeah, I think that uh, it's something that I wanted to speak to you about specifically because like there's those two ways with a sport like triathlon, right, Uh, which is not a mainstream sport. It's not a scholarship sport. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it wasn't a scholarship sport at that time. It still isn't for men, right? Um, where you can have that option of either studying online, missing the university experience altogether, or doing what you did accelerated that. And I and I think that a that was very brave. I think that was very professional. I think that was very smart. But as you said, not necessarily recommend that. You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, as Matt and I work with with some of the universities that, you know, even your alumni didn't know deeply that, oh, they they have an Olympian in, in triathlon, just, you know, that they, they didn't even know about. So uh, it's, it's a, a pretty cool way to look at that. Um, so other than asking you for, for an anecdote uh, from Yokohama, when, when you made the Olympic team and, and how that went down, like to ask you, uh, I first met your parents and I know they played an incredibly critical role throughout your career and still do. They, they're they an amazing family and, and I'm honored to know them. And I think that one of the first times I met them was when there were three U.S. boys on the junior podium in Edmonton on a very muddy day. Um, do you have any recollections from that day? Because I spent a lot of time with your mom and dad on that day when you, you were on the podium with the uh, you know, with, I think, Lucas and with um, Tony, probably, Tony yeah. Smogovic, Smogovic, yeah, yeah. Honestly, you know, that one doesn't stick out as much because I think I was probably a little upset that I was getting beat by those guys, like, overall, because I was also in my stage of, like, you know, pushing the swim bike super hard, like I always do, and then trying to hold off on the run. And there was definitely kind of a learning curve through those days, too, of having some of those guys who are just running incredibly well 
Um, and that race might have been filled, you know, frustration too, because there was a pretty challenging course at the time. I think we might have gone up that big hill off to yeah, the side. Yeah, with that ITU racing, there's always that aspect of you can't always go it alone. And if you don't have people helping to try and drop the good runners, then you're stuck against, you know, Lucas was, you know, one of the best runners ever for high school running. So, um, but yeah, I mean, they've traveled all over with me, uh, my parents, and it was always great to have them there and have some, you know, great memories of going to the different races from everywhere from Edmonton and, you know, out in French Canada and, you know, random you know, little towns there and uh, really all over the world, Budapest, China. It's, uh, it's been, it was really a great experience, especially as a junior. And I mean, as a professional, you, you know, some people might expect that there's a lot of international travel, but being able to experience racing on that world stage at a young age was really valuable. How many world championships did you go to as a junior? I remember, was it 2009 was Budapest? Yes, and I was in Gold Coast, so I missed out in Vancouver. I actually raced the age group sprint champs when it in that super cold year. Uh, Ridiculous and cold, yeah. Yeah, we were the last wave to go off before they decided to cancel it. Uh, and funny story about that is that it was a like point to point swim. And so we did our transition like the day before or super early in the morning and actually clipped my bike shoes in the wrong feet that time. Oh, and it didn't end up mattering because it was so cold. I couldn't feel my feet. The only reason I realized it was that the Velcro was going the wrong way. <laughs> so, but from there on out for for the Gold Coast through, and then I think it was Budapest and then China were my three junior world champs. Yeah, I coached a gal in that race age group. She was 50 and she was capable of and actually did run a sub 40 10K off the bike. But she spent like eight minutes in a transition that normally takes about 45 seconds because she couldn't get anything on or off. Because it was so cold. It was ridiculous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I bit my helmet strap off, like the buckle, tried to like slip it, or, which I think <laughs> might nowadays be illegal. But, you know, I did what I had to do to get out of transition that day. Yeah. Just so uh, this last weekend in the World uh, um, Mixed Relay Championships in Hamburg, I saw a German girl completely fluff her helmet and, and as a result not make it into the into the final, you know, just the same oh. thing. Stopped in the middle of transition after she'd unracked the bike and realized, oh, my helmet's unbuckled. Yeah. It's such a technical sport. And you were so good at that. You won a, You are the best in transition in long course, but you were clearly one of the very, very best in transition there. So um, maybe a little something about that, you know, how hard did you work at it? And I know you'd been doing it from, from when you were a youngster. I think it's just been ingrained in me because we did so many transitions as young kids and just doing them in the parking lot, practicing mounting, dismounting, having races, doing transitions, whether the bikes were racked or not. And so since that muscle memory was there, it's only taken, you know, practicing, maybe putting on the shoes here or there a little bit and just kind of playing around with the lacing to make sure that you could slip it on where you wouldn't slip out of your shoes then while you're running. But I think it's with ITU, especially in the, the Olympic track, you have to just simplify everything and especially your transition. Like it's very by like long course. A lot of people might have, you know, a bag full of stuff in the transition area. Some people bring buckets like there's nothing wrong with that. But to have a fast transition, it's basically shoes and that's all you're taking. Maybe sunglasses, maybe a gel, 
um, just maybe a hat, but like everything is it's just very simplified. And you think about what's the fastest way to get in and out. And I think the biggest thing is, and this goes for racing overall, it's just very important, even in a transition. It's just like calm is fast and fast is calm. Like if you're able to think and you just slow down, you almost go through things in slow motion. If you're panicked, then everything gets jerky. You make mistakes and you get flustered. It goes with like T1. You can't get your helmet buckled. I've seen people freak out and then they're in there for, you know, 15 to 30 seconds versus if they just took a deep breath, you do it in three seconds and you're out and it's no big deal. Or the wetsuit, people always struggle with that because they can't get it off. And, you know, it's just taking that extra time to like, you know, slip a finger in where the foot is and just slide it off the feet if it's getting stuck or in T2, just slip those shoes on, make sure everything's set. Like it's just calm working your way through. And that kind of goes for, you know, anything that could go wrong in a race. It's just always just that calm kind of flow state that you're always trying to reach because that's when things just flow easily. Yeah. I think it was John Wooden who said, don't hurry, go fast. You know, exactly. Yeah. So that, yeah, said very good. Well, there was that great moment. I don't know if you even recall this in Rotterdam, where you were in the world championships, we had two transitions, right? You had, you know, T1 was in a different place to T2. And uh, the coaches had to set up the second transition for the athletes. And what you gave me all these instructions on how you wanted your hat and how, how you wanted the tongue of your shoes. And you gave me a lesson on how to do that and where to put your gel packs and stuff like that. And then I was taking photographs of, of all of the setups in T2 and then sending the photographs to the official who was working in T1 so that they could show you guys that this is what your setup looks like because you guys were running blind into a, a T2 situation in a world championship race, right, in a grand final race. It's just to, just to give people a sense of how how technical and how quick it needs to be and how it can get, you know. So that was a, exactly. a fond memory that I have of setting up your transitions and feeling like this is an awesome responsibility because you guys are normally responsible for it yourselves and you couldn't do it then. Well, and nowadays that's like almost good practice for the long course racing because we've had so many split transitions and you have to check your stuff the night before. Versus Olympic stuff, like you're there, you can walk through it, you can check everything. Most of the time now you put your stuff in a bag and you just got to like, you know, hope it doesn't rain or make sure it doesn't blow away or, you know, if the volunteer grabs the correct bag or not. So it's really the same thing. Like even coming into the transition in Roth, like we turned in our bags at a truck the day before and they knew where our bags was. And so you'd be shouting your number and trying to find the person after riding you know, four hours on the bike, like who's got my bag and they were incredible and were able to find us really fast. But it's one of those things too, where it's like, it's a short period of time. That's a little bit stressful. So you just have to like, you know, be calm and just stay focused on, you know, the task at hand. Tell us about Roth. Now that you get there, Ben, it's so incredible. I mean, you set the North American record. You're the fastest uh, U.S. Ironman athlete ever. And we have all these meetings and discussions and technical stuff that we do before the race. And then you go out and you absolutely knock it out the park. And we don't get on the blower afterwards and, and, and talk about it, right? So it's like, okay, done Roth on the podium, fastest marathon ever. Okay, now next, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So tell us about it a bit. Oh, um, 
I mean, the race itself, like for people who don't know Roth, this is like the biggest triathlon in the world. Um, you have about 3,500 like individuals, age groupers competing, plus another like 1,000 to 1,500 relays that they do. Um, but it, the main thing is the spectators. Like 300,000 people came in to watch this race and the town is like, you know, 25 to 50,000 people. Like it's a super small town. So people are coming in from all over. They're super accommodating. Um, I mean, I could talk, probably talk about the whole episode about how great Roth is, but the race itself, I mean, for me, it's, it's funny because, you know, there's an article that was written that said like, you know, the perfect race for me. And honestly, like, I don't know if it was perfect because I was third, like, and I had, you know, one of the fast, like the fastest American time, but like I crossed that finish line and like, I got beat by 12 minutes and it wasn't like a, Oh, I just like, I think I executed the absolute best that I could on the day and I absolutely emptied the tank, but I was going there and thinking like, okay, that's great. But like, no, I need to be better. Like I needed to, you know, you can't come off the bike with Patrick Lang and expect to beat him necessarily on the run, even though I limited the damage for the first, you know, 18 miles super well. Uh, and same thing with Magnus, like you can't give up 12 minutes on the bike. So there's part of me that was like, this is amazing super proud of this like a great accomplishment then the other parts like okay they're kind of picking apart my race and being a little picky but um i think you know what was awesome was i'm a sub 240 marathoner like and i think that that's something like and that was my second uh full distance ever so uh i was super happy and i i we haven't talked about it but i went out in like 232 233 pace on that canal which is super flat and exposed but it was just such a rhythm run for me that I just like, I, I think that right now, like I just had locked into that, like, you know, 548, 550 pace so many times and like the tempo runs and stuff. I went into that race kind of knowing like, you know, 235, if I could execute would be about right for this course. And, you know, through the halfway mark, the half marathon, I was like 216 and change. And, you know, just trying to tell myself, like, just stay calm, like, just stay relaxed. Like, this is good. Like going back to when I first did the Ironman and you're like, it's got to be easy through the first half marathon. It's just got to be easy. And yeah, I had, you know, some great cheers. Like it was, it was awesome to run that race. But those last four miles, they send you like uphill to this town out, like kind of run through a forest almost, but it's it's like a climb that's like, you know, almost a mile or so, or even a little longer all the way up. And I did a workout with Jim out there, um, you know, leading into the race. And when you're fresh, you can kind of bounce up the hills. You're a little bit slower, but you make up for it. That was the most painful four miles I've ever ran. Like that was like the darkest place. I'm like doing math in my head to the guy, like how far back is the guy behind me and how much faster would he have to run to be close to me? Because he had like four minutes at that time and you're four miles, you're like, okay, as long as I just run like, you know, a seven minute mile right now, like that's going to be, he would have to run six minute miles, which would be insane right now. And yeah, I, I had one person, I feel like, and you know, maybe I imagined it, but I swear they said he's coming like a mile from the finish line. And that, yeah. I mean, that was probably the worst thing you could have said to me. Cause I kept looking back. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, how did he come back? But yeah. overall like i mean yeah i think i executed super well and it's it's more of a you know just trying to figure out like when you're going you know almost your half ironman pace for the first 
hour of the bike. Like there's only so much you can do overall, but yeah, I mean, it was just, it, that was the fifth race in a row that I really executed well. And I don't feel like the three races that I've had this year have been, you know, feeling perfect. And I work with uh, a mental coach and we were just talking about that. And it's like, it's when you're at your C and D game is what really kind of defines you. Everybody races well on your A and B game. Like that's, that takes care of itself, but it's when you're at your C and D game, like how do you perform? And it's like the Michael Jordan when he's got the flu and like was up all night, like had to have an IV, like, and had to be held up in between, you know, plays and stuff like that. Like, how are you playing when you're at your worst? And I feel like with a few of my races this year, it's like, I've dug myself out of holes and kept myself in the game and in the fight and kind of taken it one section at a time. And I think that's what's been super cool to see because I think the closest I've gotten to a perfect race is probably that half Ironman world champs that like Matt, you were at and like just being able there and granted, you know, it would have been perfect if I would have won, but like being able to race that whole race, like that was just really great training, taper, execution, and was super hard, but maybe just flowed easier than some of these other races. And I think that's what I'm really taking away from this first half of the season. And especially Roth where a full distance race in Ironman, it's just not going to feel good the whole time. It's probably going to feel bad yeah. at some point. So being able to get through that and dig yourself out of that hole a little has been kind of really cool to see and experience. Can I, yeah, I, uh, there, I just want to talk about your, C and D game and what you just brought up about 70.3 worlds because, ah, oh boy, I mean, I get emotional thinking about it. I, I got chills when you brought up me being there. I was, I, I was thinking to myself about the mental challenges going into that race and it wasn't disparaging, but there was a lot of chatter that you just didn't have it that year and you didn't have the best year leading up into that, but I knew better. I knew that you were ready, and that's why I call you Rocky, too. Not just for the way you actually race on the day, but it's not about how many times you get knocked down. It's about how many times you get back up, keep moving forward. you got to keep moving forward, and that's like that's you all day. But that's so much easier said than done, and I just think listeners would love to know how you go into 70.3 worlds and go in, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run down everybody right now and I'm just going for it. Like, it doesn't matter that I have the Olympic champion behind me. I'm just doing it. Even though I have no reason to believe I should be doing this compared to my last six months. Right. So if you would speak on that, then. Yeah. So like to kind of give a little background, like I had a decent start to the year, had some good training, um, and then got a bit aggressive. And we just learned too that rest for me if we do um like rest on demand by the time i'm feeling tired and say hey i need rest i've already started to dig myself a hole um just kind of how i guess my physiology and how i can push myself kind of is um so that kind of put us on the back foot going into the north american champs in chattanooga and just like i knew that day like that week going in i'm like jim like i'm i'm pretty like shattered here like I'm taking naps like before the race and like usually I'm jumping out of my skin during a taper like and we just rested as much as we could and that race didn't go well and then just developed like uh, some sickness ran through the family here just what happens when you have kids and 
didn't realize until after the escape from Alcatraz race that I had a sinus infection that I raced with. So just a couple of things that put me on the back foot and had me resting a lot. And so not a lot of training. And so we went back to um, kind of the basics of what has been successful for us. And I think that's the first important point is, you know, don't reinvent the wheel all the time is go to what's worked for you and build off of that. So like, keep it simple. Don't change what's been, you know, working for you for the past couple of years and just, you know, take that and just like kind of slowly advance, slowly like build things on top of it. So we just had a few races then where like I didn't have enough time to fully be prepared for the demands of like, you know, basically a world championship field. So like a week later I was racing a super competitive or a few weeks later, a super competitive race and just, you know, wasn't good the whole race. And then we go back and we train some more and I was able to make it, you know, halfway through the bike. And so I kept finding these little things to be, you know, build momentum, but just to be like, find positives in a, like a negative result. Um, and I had this constant conversation with Jim is like, okay, what's going on? Like, what are we doing? Is this right? And just kind of bought into it and had faith and really, you know, I felt like I was ready before the race in September in Dallas. That was another, you know, world championship-esque field. Um, but I think, you know, the heat just got like to my gut and didn't absorb calories well enough. So I ended up, you know, fading throughout the race. And that's where I really like <clears throat> took a step back and I really talked to Joe like, are we doing the right stuff? Like, is this training right for what we're doing, for what the demands of the racing is now? And uh, I started working with a mental coach again at that point. And we kind of did like a crash course. We had six weeks to the world champs. And we talked to him and he said during his swim career, swam for the U of A, um, he had this switch at one point where like he continued, like he's just second at the national champs a lot. But then his senior year, he switched what he called like the, uh, I'll abbreviate, but like the effort switch. And just, I don't care what anybody else thinks. Like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, this is just it. Like, I'm just going for it. This is nothing how it should or shouldn't be. Like, I'm just racing. And that's kind of what I flipped. And I'm like, you know what? I want to be as strong as I can in the swim and the bike. We've always been working on the run and we always have this progression that's coming along. But I'm going to be so strong in the swim and the bike and really focus on that because I can come off fresher and run better. And really just committed to our plan again and said, those other races are not like they don't define where my fitness is at. I've seen the progression in training. I've seen these positives come along. Um, Jim and I got on the same page um, and just committed to it. And I saw that progression in the training and that's the momentum that I used and just kind of let go to of expectation. I knew my fitness that I could be competitive and I just wanted my body to show up and to be able to race. That was like, I just want to be able to go out there and compete, whether that's for 10th or whether that's for first and just feel like I could race. Cause those other races, I was just sloggy. I was survival to the finish. And so when I got out there, it was just, you know, one step at a time, like nail the swim and then get on the bike. And, uh, Christian, the Olympic champ, he came up pretty quick and he set a pace that basically everybody said, there's no point in us going to the front because we're riding on your wheel as fast as we could pretty much go. And I just knew all of the hills were going to be defining moments. And I just prepared myself for each hill. And by the time we got to the big climb, I, you know, getting to the top, I'm like, the bike is basically over. They kind of gaps me a bit on the downhill, but 
you know, I took the time to like reset, keep them in sight. And I knew the two other guys with him that I've outrun at the half distance before. And I picked them off pretty quick through transition, uh, used my fast transition to my benefit and got to close that gap quick. And then I saw Christian just at the top of the first hill a little bit before the long stretch that's like a gradual uphill look back. And that's not something that Christian really does. And I noticed that the gap was kind of closing. And so I just kind of clicked in my mind. I'm just like, he's mine. Like, I'm going to catch him. And maybe ran a bit quick that first. I caught him maybe a little bit fast instead of letting him dangle, but caught him on the steepest part and put in a little dig. And I just kind of knew, like, you know, we talked about it before the race with my coach and just my team around me. If you want to beat the Norwegians right now, like you don't let them define the pace. You don't let them pick what they're going to do because they just know their limits super well from their training. And so my strategy was like, let's just run. Let's test him on the hills, the downhills, see where he's weakest and I'll lead. Like I, there's no point in him leading. Like I feel good. Like let's just, you know, see how we can test him. And I was just enjoying it. Like that was just super fun to be able to race at the front again and against the Olympic champ. And I was doing everything I could to beat him. But in the back of my head, I remember thinking on that second loop going up, I'm like, you know, this is already a win. Like I'm showing that I could be a world champ. Like I'm racing with the Olympic champion here. Who's one of the best runners in the sport and people don't think I'm a runner. And this is changing that. Like, let's just figure out how to close it. And it just so happens that, you know, on the final downhill, he found another gear and we were both running sub five minute miles at the end of a half marathon to like try and close it. But, um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I loved the fight and I love being able to compete again. And that's what I've been, you know, taking into every race. It's just the trust and just executing what you can on your day. And, you know, I think that was probably one of my A or B, um, you know, kind of form, like that every like the stars all kind of aligned for me there but yeah that was just you know when you race you just you don't put anybody up on a pedestal anyways and christian was just you know a guy that i wanted to beat there like he was he just happened to be the olympic champ and probably one of the most decorated triathletes we have in the sport right now but um yeah you just you got to put yourself up on the same level as them and and not give them any space Oh, you've, you mentioned so many things, you know, you talk, you spoke about, you know, uh, teaming up again with, with a mental coach. One of the things I wanted to bring up about Roth, um, uh, you know, and you've been saying Jim a lot, just so people know that's Jim Vance, your, your coach, uh, in triathlon. One of the things that Jim, one of the first texts that Jim said to me, he said, Bobby, we need to put our heads together because the race is, you know, Ben's not even cooled down yet. And he said, Jim, we need to find 12 minutes on the bike, get to it, start working on the plan. You know, I need, I need 12 minutes on the bike, you know, typical of, of how you are. So maybe this is a good way to segue into, you know, uh, as a psychologist, you know, a mental, a mental skills coach, uh, myself, uh, Matt, and then most importantly, of course, Jim and how, you know, Jim has that breadth of personality that he's willing to be okay with with bringing specialists on board in in the process. Yeah, honestly, it's like uh, it's like raising kids, right? It takes a village. Like you have to have a good team behind you, and uh, for some people, that's you know the fam, your family, and your coach, and it might branch out. And 
you know, being a professional triathlete, like I'm looking for that percentage point or half a percentage point to get a, a leg up on my competitors. So, um, like for me, it's worthwhile to know, you know, work with you and Matt and my mental coach and Jim and, you know, find those extra percentage points wherever I can. Uh, maybe for the average person, we're talking about like, hey, it, you just need consistency first and then you start adding in, you know, more and more. But as far as like all of this, like Jim is great because, you know, he's very smart and he's very good at what he does, but he also knows that he doesn't know everything. And so he'll reach out and he's been doing this for the seven years that I've worked with him and just picking other people's brains and he's always learning. And so like we brought Bobby on, you know, I mean, since we started basically to just learn more about the run and Bobby, you really encouraged us to bring Matt in. And I've always done strength work, but never strength work like Matt, never with the results that Matt had uh, or that we have with Matt. And, you know, I, sometimes I'm hesitant to even call it strength. I like to say it's strength and mobility because it's really about movement. And, um, you know, a mental coach is always good, but I want to focus on Matt because the fact is like in 2020, we brought you on and I had made a lot of progress in the run and Bobby had worked with uh, us for a long time and we're always making improvements but with matt not only did we make improvements just in how i moved on the run in the first six months but my bike fit also completely changed and that just goes to show and we didn't even do any heavy lifting or anything we just did basic movements to increase my mobility and just know how to move with everything and the bike fit is interesting because it just shows how much my body changed. Sometimes it's hard to quantify and qualify like, you know, how much does form work actually work? Okay, so the run looks a little prettier, maybe running a little faster. But when you have to change your bike fit, like something that's all like angle driven and everything like that, like I got to be more arrow, which saved more energy over time for the run. And it all kind of adds up together. So that's, I think, too, just why it's important to, you know, find people who are good at what they do and put them on your team. And that's where you kind of make those marginal gains that really add up to these bigger performances. Yeah. So Ben, thank you, first of all. And I, I want to say, this is a topic that I really wanted to get in today for listeners, because I feel like when it comes to strength training, there's so much um, influence out there versus education. And I get to use your example and that helps tremendously, right? You you help this program shine because you're proving the point with just really good movement and then motor control and your ability to be able to start to use that neural drive. This all starts with the basics. And so while there are athletes that I work with that I think may need more um, quote-unquote heavy lifting at points. It depends, and it's not always the same answer, but I do know that starting with movement improvement and then reinforcing that, especially when you're talking about somebody who is doing all these repetitive cyclic patterns like endurance athletes like yourself are, those, those things are always going to really be big boulders that we can move. And so what I want to bring up first and foremost is you've mentioned Jim already. You've got a great team around you. Jim, 
brought me in and uh, from Bobby's recommendation, but the first few sessions at least, Jim was sitting in and watching everything we were doing. And I was thinking, okay, this guy's either going to be a pit bull or he's just a good coach. And, uh, you know, he was a good coach and is, and is a good coach. And then he just wanted to understand what I was doing with you. But I'm big on testing and retesting. So when we were doing that within a three-week period, we could see that you had made some major improvements that were already going to help your performance. And Jim's like, okay, I trust you. You got it. And from that point on, it's always been that trust that I've gotten from you, from Bobby, from Jim, where I don't have to second guess. And I can also rely on you for feedback. So I'll finish with this and then uh, let you talk about what makes this process work for your success. But I'm working a lot of times with athletes that are trying to get to a higher level. And and again, performance mindset is what I always talk about. If you have a performance mindset, then I I love it. I don't care I don't care if you're elite or if you're mid-pack or you're just starting out. Performance mindset is what I care about. And Bobby mentioned John Wooden before. You have his pyramid of his success, industriousness, enthusiasm at the cornerstones. And that's what I look for now for that performance mindset along with sportsmanship. And I could tell very, very quickly that you re- represented those things so well, in fact, that now that's that in my mind is what I reference to. D- does this athlete have those components like Ben does? And I say that because no matter how simple it was in the beginning, you didn't question me. You didn't. You said, okay, I will do this. You're saying that after a few weeks, we will notice some differences. And we actually noticed the differences even sooner than that. But you did it every day without question and with pure repetition. You weren't too good for it. And that's in the end of the day, I sometimes deal with athletes. I know they don't necessarily just have that ingrained in them, younger athletes, especially where I'm saying, I I gave you this protocol. It took me four hours to write it up and you followed it for one week. And now you're asking me why you're not getting the results after three months, right? You never questioned it. You applied it. You did it. But that makes you very unique. And to me, the best of the best, they leave their egos at the door. If they decide that they're going to trust something or they're going to do something, they do it. And then they do expect that performance to come, but they do it and they commit to it. What what would you say to athletes that want to be a better version of themselves, but are not necessarily fully like ingraining themselves and committing themselves to plans like this? Yeah, I'm going to actually bring up um, a conversation that we have ongoing with my mental coach, and he loves studying the greatest in any sport. And we talk about Kobe a lot, Michael Jordan, all of these guys, and you know Michael Phelps, whoever. But what they do, what the greatest in any sport does is they practice the basics again and again and again. So it's ingrained in them so that in the moment, they don't even have to think about it. They just do the basics. And there was a a, a journalist or somebody who was uh, just watching Kobe practice before anybody. So he's doing these super simple drills. And they were asking, well, why why even bother with that? Like, you're one of the greatest of all time. Like, you're you're so good at what you do. Why aren't you doing stuff that's more complicated? And 
it's because that every other movement, every other action that he does on the court is based around those basics. And that's what I, you know, approach. Like, you're never too good to do the basics. Like, I, I mean, even just going out for an easy swim, bike, or run, like, you're never too good for that. You don't hammer every session. And I've done a lot of different strength programs. I've lifted heavy. I've gone to, you know, PT offices and gotten a program. But a lot of it is relatively generic and with a triathlete mindset a lot of us just want to push super hard but when i approach like whatever program you pick and when we brought you on like you have to give that um like the the philosophy of fighting chance like nobody sees progress in anything in a week necessarily like sometimes you might catch on quicker than others but if your process is starting with the basics and just how to move like it made sense to me. I'm like, okay, well, you have to start at the base and then you build on top of that and you'll get eventually more complicated movements and, you know, more dynamic movements. So, and if I, I just have always been somebody who wants to put in the work and whether that's, you know, doing something really hard or doing drills in the pool or doing the basic strength movements, like you told me to do it for 15 minutes every day. Like I have 15 minutes that I should do it. And was I 100% perfect? No, not everybody's 100% perfect in doing it. But like, I think that if you need proof, like the way that my bike fit changed, like my bike fitter was like, this is the worst I've seen you sit on a bike. You're falling off the right side of the bike because like your torso got like longer when you're doing it. So that's where like you just have to give everything a good fighting chance and doing the basics in anything is super important. And it's what all the greatest do. And it's what people overlook because sometimes the basics are boring and people want the flashy stuff. But, and you know, that's the problem I think too, like social media, a lot of times it shows the best of everything. And I post your movements on there too. And we were talking a little bit about this, but I post a lot of the movements that are cool and that I've built and worked up to um, and not always, you know, just the thoracic mobility drill that we did with the PVC pipe, just going back and forth. And I've done that drill a bunch. And what I actually really liked about working with you too, is there was always, you know, we would do a set and we would do it for four to six weeks. And then we would retest, like you said, and then we do something new. And it was always this cycle versus, you know, just the same movement over and over again, just for the entire year. And that's where I think I've benefited a lot because, you know, there's always that strength program where you just do the same stuff. And I did it in high school, you know, bench squat, um, shoulder raises, and you just do that again and again. And there's something to be said for that, I guess. But for me, having that constant adjustment throughout the year and doing stuff too, that wasn't taking away from swim, bike and run. Um, like you like you say, the minimal effective dosing that to me, it just, it always made sense with it and you know it just it's maybe i got lucky or whatever but like i had really good results through it and that's what i thought was super cool is like you don't have to go squat you know 250 pounds to increase your bike power we can do plyometrics or you know one-legged deadlifts and stuff that you know save your back and don't make you super sore and still find those gains where um it's just you know sometimes the the easiest answer is the simplest and, you know, the easiest path. And it's just uh, maybe not as flashy. Yeah. And one thing I'll yeah, just add on to that and that Bobby, you go, but uh, one thing I'll add on to that is that 
your attitude towards the training. I have come to realize and appreciate more and more after two and a half years with you that I feel at my best when I'm getting your feedback and then just we happened to have a call a couple days ago where there was some new feedback from you. I didn't have all that feedback before we talked and then on the spot we came up with I think a really good protocol for what you were telling me but I don't have hesitation because I know we have that communication and that, that's not always the case. I've, I've been in a lot of situations where I don't feel like I can expose necessarily everything that I want to try with an athlete because it's something that maybe that athlete doesn't fully trust. And that's the problem in the first place is that we have to trust each other. And that comes with communication. That comes with the kind of feedback that you give to me. And that builds and builds and builds to the point now where I think we come up with these together. Like I really do think the programming I designed for you is so specific. And that's where people would say, okay, so what does Ben do? I just want to do what Ben do. Well, that's not possible. What I give to Ben can change on the day. There are great um, ready-made programs and we, we sell them so they work, right? But when it comes to getting the, the best out of yourself and having that kind of communication, that to me allows me to really... Uh, not only be a part of Team Canute in that traditional sense, but also growth. For me, the reason why I think I'm so committed to you, and, and of course your titles and your uh, your success has been so uh, thriving for 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 all of us and and exciting. But for me, it's because I'm learning more. I'm always learning more with you. And then I can take that and I can start to express that with other athletes because of what we've communicated on. So I think we developed these programs together at this point. And, and that's what I kind of want people to know is even with our ready-made programs, you're, you're, ha you're, you're getting really great work there for that, uh, that purpose of strength being expressed for a skill set. But at the end of the day, you have to make it your own. And that has to come with really paying attention, but also having that communication. And if you expect the that last like one to 3%, then that's when you do have to have that. Or I don't think you get it. Even if you were to hire myself or Bobby or Jim Vance, if you don't have that attitude, I don't think you get that extra one to 3% that you need at that level out of any of us. Yeah, I know. Good point, Matt. Good point. And 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 Ben, you you know, you spoke about fundamentals, right? So you think of even at the at a point in this conversation, you said, uh, I kind of have a halfway decent forward lean now, right? So my my posture is halfway decent now. And yet when you get off the bike and you start running in in 70.3 world champs, the commentator says, There goes Ben with his characteristic world class run, you know? And people listening that have been listening for a long time don't realize, well, how the hell did that happen, right? You guys were saying, you know, three three months ago, you guys were saying, well, Ben's weakness is his run, right? So, you know, looking at that kind of thing and then also looking with Matt and myself, for example, on your run form, we, we're not happy yet, right? We're working on fundamentals. But if somebody looks at a video of you 10 years ago and looks at a video of you running now, they'll go, well, 
it's not even the same athlete. There's so much improvement, right? But yet we're still working on little details. We're still working on that right foot. We're still working on, on you know, on, on those details. So it, it just shows you that you've always got to go back to those fundamentals. And a lot of people, if they do not have your attitude, will not do that. It's boring. It's unexciting, as you say that. And, and we can't emphasize that enough. Your level of discipline, the the detail that Matt brings to it, he sees you on video often, right? Because that's what it takes. It's it's micro adjustments on the fundamentals, and uh, so that that's what's been so exciting to me for you know the the, the length of our relationship uh, as they go along, and everybody's mind is still thinking better. Nobody's thinking, let's hold on to what we've got. We're thinking, yeah, where can we find these margins going forward, you know? And 3% is massive, right? I mean, yeah. I, I remember even quite recently, it might have been oh, a year, a year and a bit ago, where you're saying, oh, I've got a new skill. I can backend my run. I can, every run that I run now, I find a way to run better the second half of the run. That's massive, right? <laughs> yeah. No, and I think that's that's the whole thing too, is like I'm at my level, I'm really searching for that just little percentage point. So that's why we're going so detailed, why it's so specific. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely paid off for me. And my first two races of the year, like you watch me, like that section of the year where I did not do well last year, I would hit a point and I would not be able to dig myself out of that hole. Like I couldn't, no matter what I would try, couldn't get myself running again. The peak this year, like Oceanside brought myself faster on the second half. Wasn't a great run, but salvaged it. Ibiza, I was in a dark place for four or five miles and couldn't find a rhythm, couldn't find anything, just kept trying to chip away try not to let my mind wander and do, you know, go down the wrong path and just made a commitment to sticking with it. You know, Jason West flies by you. There's not anybody who can really run with him at this point right now. Um, but then Daniel Backergaard was coming up and I just, just like, I can run with him. I'm just going to run from here to that next, to the next turnaround. Maybe it's 400 meters, 600 meters. And then I got there and I'm like, okay, like actually running with him, I found my rhythm. And then I just stuck on him and it was just make it to the next turnaround, the next lap, then keep going. And I ended up, he ran like, you know, basically my goal pace for the entire run. And so for that second half of the run, I was running my goal pace. And that to me was eye-opening showing, hey, like didn't have a great, it wasn't the perfect run, but I salvaged that and I showed that strength that I have there. Like I'm capable of running that pace as well for the entire run. We just have to, you know, line it up. And that's something that's been cool too, is the run is a tool. And I think if you ask somebody, you know, last year is Ben a sub two forty marathoner off the bike of an Ironman, they would be like, No way. Like he's he's not a sub two forty marathoner. But um, yeah, I was able to to do that as well and not just, you know, dip under it, but kind of get under it by a, a few minutes. Yeah, and then on that too, um, I just want to say you and I, we've been working together for two and a half years. The The first year we keep talking about the basics. I feel like that is where you move some big boulders. You got some big percentages out of that. And that is where, yeah, I truly believe that you are following um, for the most part with our run form programs, for example, but you were following 
those basics, using our movement improvement, doing those things. But then uh, I told you, I think to myself, two years in these blocks. And that's where we're looking for eventually that last one to 3%. And so, you know, for, for people listening, I want to encourage you that really that first year, there's so much you can get out of things if you're just consistent, like what you've clearly said. And then I think you make a decision from that, like you just got off of your race in Roth and saying, Jim, I need 12 more minutes. Like at that point, okay, we need that extra 1% now. And now what is it that we're specifically going to work towards, but off of a beautiful base. And so I just, I get a stickler on that stuff because I have to say like Bobby is known for loving to say, just another brick in the wall. I'm a terrible singer, but that's, it. it is such uh, an important component that I just, again, I, I just have to hammer that into people's minds is that put those bricks down, get the base bricks down. That is more general purpose for triathlon, for running, for biking, for swimming, all those things. And sure, you should have a priority model, right? Like what is the most important component to me right now? Is it my running? Is it my biking? Is it my swimming? But have those uh, bricks for your base. And really, I would argue that a lot of that doesn't get done even by a lot of higher level athletes properly. That's why even with you, we had to do that for really the first year. I don't think there was anything beyond just bricks in the base. And now we get to the point where you go, okay, like, and quite honestly, we just tried something for the last five sessions that was a little bit more exposing. I don't regret it. I think it's, um, it's going to help us at Worlds, um, but it's still not perfect to me for that last 1%. And so I'm making adjustments with you now on it, but then next year we'll know even better. And that just comes with time and training. Go, oh, this at this time of the year. And that's where, you know, I'm a big stickler on my spreadsheets and my notes. And with my ADD, I have to do that. But I just always go back. What do we do last year at this time? How well did it work for us? Let me get that extra 1%. So that doesn't, that's years. And just keep that in mind, listeners. You want to get better. You have the tools to build those bricks, to build that base. Uh, so I'll get off my rant, but it can be done with an attitude like yours. Ben, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, my friend. I really, really appreciate your time. We know you're a family man. We know you're a busy man. We know you've got a hectic race schedule coming up and you're getting ready for that. So we deeply appreciate you taking the time, being as vulnerable as you as you typically are on these calls, giving people some real insights uh, into who Ben Canute, the very, very special human being is. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, guys. No, it's always a pleasure to talk with you guys and just, you know, love talking this. Thanks, Dan. As always, thanks for listening to the RunForm podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pandola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. 
until next time, have a great run. Well, that was, that was awesome. Yeah.